We're continuing in our series of study on the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, chapters 1 to 16 by Apostle Paul. And I've titled the message for today, Power in the Spirit. Last week I've titled the message, The Way of the Cross. And as you recall, last week basically I said that Paul is reminding the Corinthian Christians of their past, how they were when God had called upon them. Many of these early Christians were from the lower classes, as you know. Of course, there were some from the elite, aristocratic circles, but most of them were from the lower classes. And many of them were from the slave population. So Paul is saying that you need to remember your origin, your humble beginning, that you are not wise by human standards, you are not influential by any means, most of you are not of noble birth. But this is exactly what God had in plan, what God had in mind. Because He chose the foolish things, like you, the Corinthian church, like us, many of us are foolish. We don't consider ourselves so wise and so intellectual. Most of us feel like we don't have much that we can contribute in terms of knowledge and wisdom. Most of you are weak things. I don't think we have that kind of power like some people who wield the power because they got the money, they got the political privilege. We are weak things of the world. Lowly things, sometimes despised things, and the things that are not. But God has chosen you, the Corinthian church. God has chosen us in our 21st century Christianity. Though we may be foolish, though we may be weak, we may be lowly, despised, and maybe we're nothing. He has chosen us with a purpose. And what is that purpose? Paul is very clear about this. He says that the purpose is to shame and to nullify those who are superior, who think that they are great, who think that they rise above others, who boast of themselves. God's purpose is so that they will lose that boast, lose that sense of confidence and pride. You see, our God is in the business of humbling the proud, raising the weak, empowering the underdogs, those who are needy, the Lord is there for them. But even as Christians, if we rise above that and thinking that we now we have everything, we are pretty self-sufficient, and we become proud and arrogant because of that, then the Lord, again, is going to engage in the business of humbling us. God will shatter all that is of the Tower of Babel. God is going to shatter all that is of the idols of men, the idols of self. That's his business. He wants to rid of all forms of pride in the world and especially in the church so that he may exalt only his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ should be the only one who should be highly exalted. The rest of us, we should humbly bow and look unto Jesus for everything. And you see it. This is exactly where the cross comes in. Cross is an instrument of death. We know that. 
A cross is a, a way of torturing a condemned criminal and it is a slow way of dying and perishing. But the essence of the cross is none other than denial of self. For us, if we say we embrace the cross, then we're saying we are denying of ourselves. As Jesus Christ, he denied himself, dying on the cross, shedding the blood for us, so that he may be the only way and means for our salvation. So in chapter 1, verse 31, Paul says, Therefore, as it is written, let no one boast except to boast in the Lord. He says that the Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. Why? Because they want to boast. They want to say, hey, we have the signs that God is with us. We see miracles. God is, our Yahweh is the most powerful of all gods. They want to be able to say that. The Messiah is going to topple the Roman Empire. The Jews are going to have their day. And that's why they're looking for signs. Signs of greatness. Signs of miraculous intervention of God. The Greeks are looking for wisdom. Why? They want to say, we have knowledge. We have the understanding. We understand how everything works, how everything is run. And so they're looking for wisdom. Today, there's no difference. Today, people are looking for signs and power, evidence that the God is favoring them, God is for them. And some people pride in their wisdom, knowledge, their degrees, their academic achievements. And this is the danger that I personally have to be very careful not to fall into because I belong to that circle of the intellectuals, the academics, the scholars. And I have to ask myself, am I relying upon my knowledge and wisdom to the degree that no more I am dependent upon Christ? I have to be careful and take an inventory of my heart and my motives. And Paul says in verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, when you talk about Jesus Christ, and especially His crucified form, it has a way of humbling everybody. Do you know what I'm saying? When the cross is laid before you, all these things that we want to exalt about ourselves are suddenly powerless, meaningless, irrelevant before the cross. Cross has a way of leveling everything. Cross has a way of toppling everything. And that's why Apostle Paul says, I'm going to talk about something that's like a stumbling block and like foolishness. It's nonsense to those who are perishing. But to those whom God has called, Paul says in verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. This is what we are called to present to you. So last week, we talked about the Corinthians, what they were like. And they are called and invited to embrace the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Paul is going to talk about himself. His particular call, his particular way of operation in the light of the cross. So let us turn to chapter 2. 
verses 1 to 5. Let us read this out loud together. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. Amen. Let's begin with verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. He's putting himself in the same boat as the Corinthian church. You are the foolish things. You are the weak things. You are the lowly things, despised things, things that are not. Well, I'm going to put myself right there in the same category as you. That's how it was with me. That's how I came to you. And then he continues on. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. As the Jews and the Greeks expect someone like me, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to emerge. But nonetheless, this is exactly what I came. In my foolishness, in my weakness, in my nothingness, I presented myself to you. I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. What is he talking about when he says, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom? I think he's talking about what was common in those days among the Jewish elite, like Jewish rabbis. They were taught how to make the arguments, how to make the speech. And the Greek philosophers or those who were the intellectuals in those days with some kind of wisdom that they can use to bolster their argument. I don't know how much you understand about rhetoric. That is the way of making a speech which is persuasive, argumentative, which can win the debate. Both the Jewish rabbis and the Greek philosophers who were very much aware of this because in so many ways, they had to win the argument. They have to make the point. They have to establish their points. And not only that, not only the structure and the logic of their arguments, not only making it persuasive so that it can win the argument, they had to cultivate their oratorical skills, speaking, public speaking abilities, it was all in the delivery as well. You have to articulate it with certain voice, certain gesture, certain sense of stage presence. How do I know this? Because I teach this kind of courses at my school. I teach students about speech communication, public speech, and also homiletics, the preaching art. And I think it is important we need to have a handle on our voice, have the right type of intonation, learning how to have the right type of pitch, right type of sort of uh, speed, 
and also the gesture. Personally, I feel very comfortable using my hands and using my bodies while I'm preaching, and I think that's very important. And more than anything, having a sense of stage presence. But you see, these experts of speech and communication in those days, that's what they relied upon, their voice, their gesture, their stage presence. It's almost as though they were acting, they were performing to make the arguments, and then they were using all this logic, all this sophisticated way of structuring things. But Paul says, I did not come with that. I did not rely upon eloquence. I did not rely upon some kind of superior wisdom. What I did come was to proclaim the testimony about God. You know, what is, what is the testimony about God? It is something that you have actually experienced, something that you have actually encountered. It comes from the genuineness of your heart and your experience. For you, that is truth. Because that really happened. He's saying, the thing about my preaching is that I preach truth. Truth is more important. The essence of the message is more important. So if we're going to talk about rhetoric, if we're going to talk about oratory, then that's secondary. And personally, I believe this absolutely. As much as I want to cultivate a, a sense of presence and, and have a sense of control over my voice and, um, and even work on my gestures and body movements, I believe in all that. But that's secondary. Because at the end of the day, after you presented all that and made a show of preaching style and mechanism, if you don't have a testimony, if you don't have the truth, if you don't have the essence, everything bottoms out. And this is what we need to Ask anyone who is preaching, anyone who is communicating, anyone who is sharing the gospel. And that's all of us. We're not just talking about preachers standing at the pulpit every Sunday preaching. But everyone who has a chance to share the gospel with others, we have to ask this question. What is more important? The style? The means? Even the methodology? No. I believe that the most important thing is the content. Don't you think so? It's the content. It's the essence of the message. That's the most important thing. And that's why Paul says in verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's His message. That's His content. That's the essence of His communication and Proclamation. You see, in our preaching and in our communication of the gospel, we must be determined to focus on the central theme of that gospel. Even in the Christian circles today, even among preachers sometimes, we see a lot of nonsense being proclaimed in the name of Jesus. They call it the gospel, but it's not really the essence of the gospel. They talk about the gospel of prosperity. Is that the essence of the gospel? Does it have the cross? 
They talk about the gospel of liberating the, those who are in bondage, which is very important. I think that's an aspect of the gospel, but we're not talking about some kind of political agenda or some kind of liberal activist agenda. We're talking about the content of the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I am determined to preach, and I am determined to preach just on one thing, the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So what is the purpose of preaching? Let me give you a sort of a a one-on-one on the purpose of preaching. First, when we preach the gospel, we must define the gospel for the people. See, today, just using the term gospel and saying good news doesn't mean anything. Because the preachers define it in their own ways. The prosperity gospel. Liberal political agenda as a gospel. Or finding a sort of your own self, a self-actualizing gospel. So what is the gospel? And that's what a preacher does. He proclaims by expounding the truth of the scripture, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, We find the essence of this person dying on the cross for us, representing God, the Father, who loved us so much that He's willing to give His only begotten Son to us. And also, the preacher must defend the gospel against the deceptions of the enemy. There are all kinds of heresies out there. So we must defend the gospel by preaching the proper doctrine and the morality in Christ. Not just the doctrine, morality as well. We're not just talking about doctrine or heresy today. We have moral heresies as well. Or we might call it lifestyle heresy. They preach the right doctrine, but they live the life of falsity, lies and deception. That's heresy as well. So we must defend the gospel, gospel truth centered on Jesus Christ. Another purpose of preaching is to evangelize the lost. By sharing the truth of Jesus Christ, people have the saving knowledge through Jesus Christ. And that is the only way. Only way to be saved is by believing unto Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for them. Another purpose of preaching is to train the believers, to encourage them to grow and mature in grace, having the high standard in Christ, to be Christ-like. Again, centered on Christ, Christ becomes a model by which we become sanctified. Finally, I just want to say that the real purpose of preaching is to be prophetically challenging the people of the world and also challenging the church of Jesus Christ. Challenging by exposing our sin, injustice, hypocrisy, all that is of nonsense that's going on in the church and in the world. Challenging all that with the truth of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ becomes the standard. The cross becomes the essence by which we measure everything. It is like a a ruler with which we measure. This is the standard by which we measure everything. And anything that falls short of that, we're not content with that. 
So let us remember, when we're talking about preaching or communicating the gospel, it's the gospel content, it's the message, it's the essence of the gospel. That's the most important thing. And then Paul says in verse 3, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. I came to you in weakness. Now, was Apostle Paul really that weak? Was he a man who is really like unlearned, foolish, non-influential? Someone that you can totally look down upon. Not really. If you really think about Apostle Paul's background, his pedigree, he was of the top Jewish pedigree, a Benjamin. That means they sided with Judah. They're, they were part of that stronghold of the remaining Israel. And he took pride in that. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He says, righteousness, that is highest spiritual standard. And he was at the top of that list. He was a learned disciple of Gamaliel. In other words, in terms of the Jewish law, he would have received a PhD from the great mentor, Gamaliel. He received a special call from Jesus Christ. He can't even say, well, the other apostles, they knew Jesus. I didn't know Jesus, but he visited me in a special way. The reason Lord appeared to me and he called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he claimed all these special revelations, mysteries that he's received. And even a visit to the third heaven. But he says that I am going to identify with the weaknesses of the huge population of the Christian community of the early church who were from the lower caste. Many of them were slaves from the slave population who were not sophisticated, eloquent, learned intellectuals. But I'm going to identify with them. And he preferred to identify with his suffering, his trials, and his persecutions for Christ's sake. In contrast to so-called super-apostles, these were the ones who wanted to conform to the ways of the world, the Greek rhetoric, the oratorical giants of those days. They wanted to be like that. Or what the Jews expected them to operate with, signs and wonders. They were the so-called super-apostles that the Corinthian churches prided in. And they were so eloquent in their speech. But look at Paul. He's terrible. He sounds very primitive, barbaric. He doesn't have a handle on speech. Look at his presence. And, you know, of course, some scholars think that Paul was a very short man. He didn't really have much to go on in terms of his physical presence. I don't know whether that's true or not. No one knows for sure. But they take it from texts like 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, where Paul says, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. They look down on Paul. There's nothing, nothing impressive. 
Oh, we've seen so many better speakers, so many better ministers, so many who operate in signs and wonders and miracles. And Paul had to keep silent to that. Of course, this was in the letter, letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, but he had to be silent. Did he not do signs and wonders and miracles? Of course he did. Was he not trained in rhetorics and was he not trained in, in communication? Of course he was. Any Jewish rabbi would have, any Jewish disciple of the great mentor, Gamaliel, would have received a top education because they had to go against the Greeks. They had to go against the Romans. They had to go against the pagan communicators. Paul had all that. But he didn't want to compete at that level. That's not his game. He's not interested in that. And then we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10, after he talked about this third heaven experience, this amazing revelation he's received, but he never identifies with that. He says, someone else. But we know that he's talking about himself. He doesn't want to say, that's me. I have all that. I have this special revelation that God has given me, like Moses received his revelation from Mount Sinai. But he doesn't claim that. Rather, he says, there's all this persecution that's coming my way, and he identifies that as thorn in the flesh. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Because these are the ones who are attacking me. These are the ones who are falsely accusing me. They're undermining my apostolic authority. Oh, this is so painful for me. But the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see Paul's logic? I don't want to play the game of strength and power and, and prestige and honor. I want to stay under and stay low. And I want to embrace my weakness. Why? Because I know that when I'm weak and I know when the Lord humiliates me before the public, when I appear as like a foolish person, when I appear as though I am nothing, even though I have so much, the Lord puts that under control and says, don't bring that out. I want you to stay under, stay low, because I want to demonstrate my power. Because if you elevate your strength, your prestige, your great talents and gifts, then I cannot manifest my power. And Paul knew this secret to being strong in the Lord. He has to be content with his weaknesses. He had to be content with the thorn in his flesh. He had to be totally content with his grace, God's grace, not raising himself up but placing himself always in the humble state. And then he says, I came to you in fear and trembling. What is he talking about? What is he afraid of? 
that he would be fearing and trembling. Well, I think first of all, I think Paul may be saying that when I present the gospel, this gospel is so glorious and so powerful and so awesome that I don't dare present this without fear and trembling. Maybe I can understand this because I remember when I first started out preaching after all my life of not being able to speak well before the public, every time I stood, I would be fearful and trembling by the awesomeness of this privilege of preaching the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to people. But I think Apostle Paul had a real reason for fear and trembling because in his second missionary journey, as he pretty much culminated by his arrival in Corinth, he went through so much. And if you look in the book of Acts, he starts off in Antioch of Pisidia, where the Jewish zealots stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they threw them out of their borders. That's in chapter 13, verse 15. In Iconium, the opponents tried to stone Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to kill him. In chapters 4, 14, verse 5. In Lystra and Derby, the opponents from Antioch and Iconium stoned Paul, believing him to be dead. Chapter 14, verse 19. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown into prison. That's in chapter 16, verses 16 to 40. In Thessalonica, his opponents gathered a crowd, set the city in an uproar, in protestation against them. Chapter 17, verse 5. In Berea, they initially gave him warm reception, but opponents from Thessalonica came and incited a riot against them. In chapter 17, verse 13. And then right before he arrived in Corinth, in chapter 17, verses 16 to 34, he experienced this cool reception from the Athenian philosophers. So arrogant, parading with all their eloquent, sophisticated logic and oratorical skills. And maybe, perhaps, Paul, when he finally arrived in Corinth, finding that his opponents are opposing and blaspheming him, over and over in every city that he visited, he was being persecuted, he was being oppressed. Then in the great city of Athens, he wanted to make a big point, and there, he was totally intimidated by what he was dealing with, this stronghold of arrogance and pride, Greek philosophies, and Jews are always looking for proof to us with signs and wonders. Show us that truly God is on your side. Yes, Paul had all the reason to come with fear and trembling. And he didn't know what was going to happen here in Corinth either. But Paul knew the secret of strength and power. That is, no matter how weak you feel how afraid you may be, how trembling you are, how much you're at the bottom of the rung. That is all the reason more that 
the power of God will be poured out upon you to lift you up, to utilize you as his instrument. This is what he's saying. And therefore, in conclusion, in verses 4 and 5, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Three things Apostle Paul is saying in this passage. First of all, preaching of the gospel must stand on the merit of the message, not the charisma or the style of the messenger. Preaching stands based upon the merit of the message, the content. And sometimes the content is poorly delivered. Maybe it's going to sound like foolishness, nonsense to others. But anyway, you speak the content of the word of God, the truth of Jesus Christ, and the centrality of the message of the cross. Second point is this, that the power of preaching actually comes from God's Spirit. It is God's Spirit who does the convincing. It is God's Spirit who does the convicting. It is God's Spirit who does the converting. The great preacher, the British preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, he was known for being one of the greatest sermon preacher in the history of Christianity. And every week he would be standing up in this, uh, I think they call it, the church's name is Tabernacle, and uh, he would be preaching. And so many people would come to the Lord. They would just be, just be stirred in their hearts, to give their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. One day, after he preached the message, he thought he did the lousiest job. He felt like it was the worst sermon that he's ever preached. And he was so depressed. He had a tendency to be depressed. And one of his church leaders came up to him, giving him a report after his message. And to his surprise, he hears this man saying, you know, this was the greatest impact that people have received. So many people want to give their lives to the Lord because of your message today. See, we cannot judge our own message, our own sharing, as long as we preach the message of the cross and Jesus Christ. The content itself will stand. So we should not make a judgment based upon how we delivered it. How well we package it. We do the best we can, but sometimes we come short. That's okay. It's the power of the content, power of the message, the essence of it. That's the important thing. Besides, it's the Spirit who is the empowering force here so that our faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Third point that I want to make is this. That preaching does not just convey knowledge. Preaching is actually meant to impart faith. According to Romans 10, verse 17, Paul says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the word or the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing the message, message that is preached, the message 
That is none other than the word of Christ. That's how faith is ignited. So let me summarize for you this whole dynamic of preaching of the word of God. Preaching is a mode of communication. Okay? In today's terms, for everybody in general, let's use the word communication. Okay? That is the mode by which we deliver the gospel. Because if the gospel is not shared, proclaimed, then people cannot hear. So we preach the gospel. And as Paul emphasized, it's the content of the gospel that's the most important thing, not just the style, not just the rhetoric or the logic behind it. That's important. But first of all, you have to have the content. Make sure that you have the content of the true gospel. That's Jesus Christ and the cross. And the means by which you proclaim the gospel is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, His power, that has to be the impetus. So how can we prepare to deliver the gospel, know the gospel, know it inside and out, who Jesus Christ is, what the essence of the cross is about. Hold on to that. Make everything relevant to Christ and the cross. And then what do you do? Then pray to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray before you deliver. That's all. And work on your style, work on your oratorical skills, logical presentation of the message, but that's secondary. The primary is knowing the content, knowing the power with which I can thrust forth and proclaim the message. And then if I do that, according to Paul, both in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 10, that faith will be imparted to the people. Because this faith happens not based upon men's wisdom, men's persuasion, but it happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I hear a big amen to that? But if we do it through human skills and some kind of natural talents and abilities, all kinds of wonderful acting skill or rhetorical means, there's no faith imparted. You would think you've done the job, but people are not going to have faith. Because it is the Spirit of God that imparts that faith to the people. They don't just have faith based upon human knowledge, human wisdom, human rhetorics and oratorical skills. That's not what's going to impart faith to them. What imparts faith to them is the author of faith that is the Holy Spirit. And so let the Holy Spirit do the work. And we just present the gospel in His pure, raw entity. And that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.